Welcome to Stone Club Walks and Talks, episode 6, and today we're joined by Dr. Fionn Reynolds, artist and archaeologist. We're going to get into how archaeology began for Fionn and some of her earliest memories of uncovering things from the earth. We're also going to talk about her involvement and interest in encouraging artistic communities. And also we're going to talk about mushrooms. It's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Fionn Reynolds, artist and archaeologist, to Stone Club Walks and Talks today. Fionn, great to see you. Hi there. How are you doing, Matt? I'm really well, and I'm really excited that you're joining us on the podcast because um, you've long been a friend of um, Stone Club. So let's, uh, I mean, let's start with the archaeologist bit because you're actually our first archaeologist guest on uh, Stone Club uh, series so far. And I'm really interested in where your interest in digging old things up began. What were, do you re, do you remember the first time that you unearthed something or that that you were sort of bewitched or entranced in some way by uh, rediscovering the past, however ancient or modern? I think it was more mischievous, to be honest, because <laughs> it was my first memory. Really, is when I was a child. Um, staying over my grandparents' house in West Wales. And they had a big garden jutting back onto a farm. And we were out there playing and it just seemed to be this mound of earth. And we were like finding, uh, me and my brother, finding coins and like clay pipes. And we were really excited. And then later on, my grandma called us in for dinner and she was like aghast because we'd basically undone a whole (laughs) earthen kind of bank that my granddad had, had done to stop all the sheep from coming in and eating all the veg in the garden. But I think after that, I started collecting clay pipes. Yeah. 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 So it started the collection as well. And old coins, I think I remember, you know, like just in frames. I don't know where I got them, but I think they were, you know, just not very old ones, to be honest. I mean, I've, I've gone way back now. My- <laughs> Gone back to the beginning. <laughs> and, and do you remember that feeling, holding those things in your hands um, for the first time when they sort of were unearthed? Do you remember how that was for you at that moment? I can't remember as a child, but obviously as an archaeologist, you know, you have that feeling of touching something that hasn't been touched for thousands of years. Um, and yeah, it does give you a, a bit of a thrill that you found something, you know. Um, yeah, because a lot of the time you don't find, you might go for a whole week not finding anything. So when you do find something, it's quite exciting, you know, and everyone's like gathers around and you're like, oh, what's this? Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's a, it's a good experience. Have you been on a dig before? I, I have um, only once though, and it was a bit like some of those classic time team episodes where they get to the end of day one and there's literally nothing and they go, but well, don't worry, we'll be back after the break and there's bound to be something tomorrow, you know, and you, it was a bit like that. Um, and it was Roman, it was sort of Roman mosaics that were originally, that, that eventually were uncovered and it was really exciting to see them. But at the end of day one was just kind of like a mud fest and um, not very hopeful that there was going to be anything really. Uh, you should come and uh, dig with me. <laughs> yeah, well, I can't wait. I'm, def- I'm definitely up for that. So, so the so becoming an archaeologist, you know, there's quite um, uh, that's quite a journey. 
you start you start off with the clay pipes and the coins and so on. Do do you remember? I mean, did you want to become an archaeologist? Did you accidentally become an archaeologist? Was it a a quest that you'd sort of considered over the years, or or did you just think, yeah, I'll, I'll give that a go? What brought you into it all as a profession? Completely by accident. So um, I remember sitting in a common room in sixth form and just flicking through the UCAS book and it landed on archaeology. So I literally just didn't know what I wanted to do. But I think archaeology really is one of those subjects that if you're interested in something, you can veer off into different specialisms. So if you like working outside, you can be um, someone who excavates or works in the commercial sector. Or if you like working in the lab or you want to specialise into looking at objects or do you like thinking about what these people did or you know you can go into science or um into the arts you can kind of go into all sorts of different specialisms within archaeology really it doesn't really close doors i think it opens doors um, and that's what i kind of discovered with it really it sounds like it offers a lot of freedom in that respect in that you can i guess i guess you learn foundations do you to you know to the subject as a whole and then you can go off in those directions is that how it works yeah so um yeah you start off learning you know archaeological skills maybe you go on a dig um so you learn the excavation skills how to use a wheelbarrow properly how to use a mattock properly how to use a trowel properly and then you get a little passport uh that's quite cute um, you get to travel as well. Um, so, uh, you know, in your second or your third year, maybe you can go um, abroad and go on an excavation abroad or go and visit something that you've always wanted to visit. Um, so, yeah, it's it does it offers you quite a broad base, really. I feel like I'm a careers advisor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's probably not. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to get rich being an archaeologist. That's one thing for sure. But it's... It's a passion, you know. I think it gets under your skin, really. Yeah, I won't say the name of the the um, the in institution. It was actually I went on like ad an adult um, learning course once to start a really basic archaeological qualification, and I arrived on day one, and there was something like um, half of the people that had enrolled and paid, you know, for that first term or for first year. I can't remember what it was now, but. Um, the tutor sort of walked in a bit late and said um, there won't be a year two because there's not enough of you so there's very little point in as any of us doing any of this so if you want to leave you can and also even if you did get to the end and we did complete the following years there's no jobs in archaeology archaeology anymore anyway and i i think i did go back twice more after that but very soon i realized that he he probably had had enough of archaeology for himself and that i wasn't therefore going to learn and i suppose sometimes in professions it can feel a bit daunting that it that it's difficult and how can you see your way forward in things but it's great it's great that it's still it seems to be thriving now though it seems to me that there's lots of people want to become archaeologists and it does feel like there's a lot of exciting things happening so does it ebb and flow do you feel like there are good careers in archaeology to be had you know regardless of uh, of pay and so on do you, do you think it's a, a good thing to enter into I think there is an ebb and flow, definitely, because when I finished my PhD back in 2010, it was there was lots of opportunities to be uh, doing, you know, humanities, um, anthropology, the arts within the interpretive side of archaeology. 
And then I think there was a huge swing around that time to science-based archaeology. Um, so, you know, looking and looking at pottery, looking at teeth, looking at isotopes. So a lot of those people that I originally did my PhD in that were more interested in the art side of archaeology, they quickly had to move to science to kind of survive. Um, and I think it was at that point that I kind of left academia, I suppose, um, and became a community archaeologist. And um, we directed an excavation at St. Lithens in the Vale of Glamorgan as a community archaeology project, and uh, which was amazing, uh, really privileged to, to have been allowed to do that. Um, and then, yeah, there we found right at the front of St. Lithens, which is a Neolithic chambered tomb around um, 6,000 years old, was a remains of the forecourt area, um, making it um, similar in, in style and, and the way it looked originally to Tinkins Wood burial chamber that looked that was just, just down the road. And we also found some um, flints and a really nice bone needle as well. That was a lovely little find um, and some Grugler pottery. So, yeah, I mean, um, that was amazing. Um, and, I, you know, I think that kind of caught me as well as part of my what am I doing in the archaeological world? I still want to be an archaeologist, but I also want to kind of inspire the surrounding communities around these monuments. I like that kind of relationship then I've been working up with kind of monuments in Wales I suppose through my through my work uh, my yeah. job but also you know from a personal point of view the uh, the kind of pull to these sites that I have personally as well um, is still really quite strong. Yeah, I get that very clearly. Um, uh, for anyone who follows your Instagram, and I'll, I'll share that on social media and so on, so people can find you and, and have a look at what you're doing. Um, there's a really interesting mix on there. Um, really, between the three things I was most interested in chatting to you about today, there's lots of art-based um, things that you share. So we'll get onto that in a little while. But um, as well as the archaeological sites and these incredible photographs and, and the knowledge that you share with everybody about, you know, chambered tombs that you found or standing stones and bo both very well-known ones and much more obscure ones as well. Many of the sites you share, I really love seeing because I'm like, oh, I don't know that one. I don't know that one i'm gonna to have to go and visit um you know and you're and you're making them accessible and making them known um i don't think it's going to raise stampedes to them but it's really lovely to see people um finding out about lesser known sites that they might have to work a bit harder to go and find um and it, it helps enormously with that but the other thing that you're sharing a lot of is much more nature-based um you know, landscapes are obviously interesting to you. Connection with nature is obviously really interesting to you, and particularly mushrooms. It seems is yeah, is it maybe it's not a recent obsession, but it's something I've noticed you posting about more and more. And the photographs are incredible. Some of these things you're finding, some of these living beings, you know, these alien-looking looking beings. So, where did that all begin for you as well? You know, so we've got the sort of archaeolo archaeological journey and how that began, but the interest in mushrooms insights, and are the two connected? Is is your interest in archaeology and mushrooms connected in any way? It definitely for me is completely entwined. Yeah. Um, and I suppose that's just happened over time, I think. I mean, um, I've, I studied some passage tombs on, in Ireland, um, Newgrange, Nowth and Douth. And I was interested in how these monuments are kind of maybe 
related to altering your mind or altering your consciousness and was that happening through the use of mind altering drugs or was that being you know used just from altering your mind i suppose i mean in the modern sense people see a marathon as a really good way of altering your mind that doesn't have any hang-ups to it and then you get the elation of you know the achievement or going up a mountain going you know on a pilgrimage somewhere all these are ways that we change our minds that, um, that are allowed i suppose um but you know there are other ways of changing our minds drumming chanting dancing um staring in a mirror for a long time staying in a really dark place for a really thought you know a long time um which could have been happening within these chambers you know because they are enclosed and you're sitting somewhere in the dark for ages and ages and ages you might start seeing things um and you know these passage tombs are covered in these um geometric patterning and there were studies done in the 90s that looked at the patterns on the stones at Nauth passage tomb and compared them to um, entoptic phenomena or what people saw under the influence of mescaline and I'm sure it was more than 90% the same kind of shapes you know and they did a kind of statistical analysis to match them all up um, so there is something to it. I mean, you know, the other thing is in the Neolithic period, which is when people are stopping hunting and gathering and they are moving on to agriculture and farming, they are cutting down loads of the forests across the country. Um, and that's going to encourage grassland fungi to grow. And what's one of the main um, ones that we might know, psilocybin, um, that grows out of cow pats. And in the Neolithic, they were, um, you know, farming cow, uh, cows and uh, looking after cows. So, you know, surely there's a connection. Well, we will never be able to tell, I don't think. That's the real thing because uh, mushrooms are organic. They just don't survive in the archaeological record very well. I mean, we do have some instances of, of it occurring in the archaeological record, which are really cool and interesting. And I just think, you know, it's bizarre that as archaeologists, we are basically excavating soil that has been decomposed and totally transformed by fungi and mushrooms but yet they are just not being discussed in archaeology and I, I just wonder why that is whether or not it's just too hard can we do dna analysis come on there should be a way for us to maybe uh up the up our game and try and put more and more kind of funding towards looking at fungi and mushrooms and, and even lichen i suppose in in the archaeological record and i suppose that's because of it needing to be evidence-based is it to be able to to prove scientifically that um there's a there's a relationship or you know a connection between those things rather than a theoretical um uh, sort of um get guesswork or or theory-based ideas is that is that why that is yeah, so, I mean, we do have evidence for mushrooms from the past. We have Otzi the Iceman, which was the Bronze Age guy that died in the, um, the Alps in Austria. And he was carrying a, a birch polypore mushroom around his neck, whether that was a talisman or whether that was something that we, he kept because birch polypore has an antiseptic quality, so you can make really thin layers um, of plasters 
so if he cut himself or he could be using them for fire lighters you know because they're also great fire lighters um there's also evidence in star car which is in yorkshire the uh mesolithic headdress um place where they were living you know on, on the side of a lake and so a lot of the stuff was waterlogged they have found um i think um king alfred's cakes and polypore mushrooms there so you know were they using them as fire fire lighters um probably yes because you know they're in the landscape um but i just think as archaeologists maybe we just haven't been looking for them yeah i i suspect just through the diversity of humanity and the curiosity of, of you know some people over others when they find something new or or discover something that it, it seems very unlikely to me that no one would have tried to eat something you know that was discovered anew within a community or someone would have you know at least given it a bit of a go um and and perhaps that involved learning the hard way with some of the um, fungal species we have in the United Kingdom. But it but it seems very likely to me that someone would have put it in their mouth or tried, you know, to see what it would do. Would it be a good food? You know, would it cook? You know, could it be eaten raw? And I imagine also there'd have been people at whatever period in our evolution of humanity that would have said that was amazing, that one that I just ate, you know, you've got to try this. And some people would have been um, enamored by that and excited by that possibility. And others might have said, I think I'm OK, actually, because I, I observed you for, <laughs> for the last 48 hours and I don't know that that's what I need in my life. So perhaps we're ranging from the more sceptical of... Um, of academics to Julian Cope's um, They Were On Hard Drugs song, which, is, you know, sort of emphatically makes the point that yeah. I think our, I think our, I think our Bronze Age and Neolithic four, uh, fathers were psychedelically informed. Yeah, I mean, from a, another side of that argument, from the Mesolithic to the Neolithic, that is when pottery is invented, because you are staying in one location um, for the first time. But also it's when cheese, beer and bread are invented. So they definitely know what the yeast fungi can do, which is quite a complex one to start off with, to be honest. So surely they should have background information on the other ones, you know, even though that probably fermentation was, you know, like you said, it was, you know, an accident maybe to start with that they saw mold growing and then harnessed the power of that mold you know surely they would have known more than just those specific mushrooms is the yeah. question they would have known more than that why would they just know those specific ones is the question because our brains haven't changed are they they're the same brains they're just living in different environments yeah which is so incredible to think about and what a period of of evolution for humanity i'm not sure we've moved that far to be honest with you you know um cheese beer bread pottery um there was a lot of good stuff going on wasn't there at that moment in time this certainly isn't a um a you know a primal species of people that don't know what they're doing this is really highly evolved and and actually not very different to most cafes or delis that you could walk out and go and visit you know today it's, it sounds like a fairly staple menu still um an incredible period of evolution, perhaps, you know, in, in that way. So, Absolutely. yeah. And 
Is that one of the most exciting times for you then when all of these sort of discoveries start coming together, when you see those developments of pottery and you see those developments of grain harvesting and you and you see all that going on? Does that really sort of set you alight when you're thinking about these communities and sort of trying to put yourself in the footsteps of, of, of our ancestors? Are these the sorts of things that you think about when you're when you're working? Well, that's a hard question. Um I don't know. I mean, I, I, I love being outside um, and I love exploring. And I think that's similar connection between archaeology and mushrooms for me as well, because in archaeology, the whole point is potentially to find something, to find yeah. something new or to interpret something in a different way or to find an object on an excavation. It's that act of finding that I really enjoy. And with the mushrooms, it's uh, it's a kind of... if. I can't find any archaeology. I can just go out and find a mushroom. <laughs> and I'm probably more likely to find a mushroom, to be honest. So I can have that feeling of finding, of exploring and finding something. I think that's what drives me, really. Finding something new or thinking about something in a new way um, that, that then opens it out so that we can understand things in a more interesting, but also maybe in a deeper way than just from a scientific archaeology standpoint. That's very interesting because then, as you were saying that, I was thinking about, um, you know, works that are really popular at the moment by someone like Merlin Sheldrake and the, and the film, you know, he's just made as well with Bjork narrating it. And, um, you know, we've had that uh, over the last few years as well between tree species and how they communicate with each other, you know, and how mycelium networks, you know, aid that process or actually are essential to that process in terms of communication between tree species and and how they support each other and this ecosystem goes way beyond you know simply something that's biological there is a communication aspect to it that's that's really clear um and and very long lasting as well uh, within human frames and human timelines um uh, just sparked an idea that perhaps our ancient sites are also connected by mycelial networks or you know blind springs or water sources and so on are all part of that same network it just i'd love to see a sort of illuminated map of ancient britain connected by mycelium i don't know if that's possible or whether it's even true but it's a nice idea isn't it like that uh slime old tokyo thing that they did where they uh replicated the train stations in tokyo by putting food on all the train stations and then the slime will just found them all and just replicated the train network i was like whoa that just blew my mind when i read that exactly and and it did it in i can't remember how many years it is to refine the tokyo tube system and how quickly the slime mold did it but it was you know it was just an incredible incredibly fast process wasn't it and it did it even more effectively than we've still managed to do um you know after all the things we've learned um uh, that's also an interesting point what you just said there i think as well because the figurative and the way in which things can be expressed and shown and um connect with people um because the other area as as i mentioned earlier is is the arts and the visual arts but also performative arts and and you're a printmaker an artist in your, in your own right you know this is another really important side to work and your prints fantastic there's they're hanging on the walls here i can highly recommend them uh, but they're another way of seeing and knowing and experiencing and documenting um very different than writing an archaeological report i spent years reading all of the different books that tc lethbridge wrote after he professionally retired as an archaeologist but what i loved about 
his very early archaeological journals that I managed to pick some up of years ago was his drawings and these drawings on site and the way in which he'd interpret these things, you know, quite simple line drawing illustrations. So I think there is a tradition there of, uh, you know, bringing them to life by by, by drawing them and bringing them together. But it, but it's gone beyond that for you. Um, I don't, as far as I'm aware, he didn't exhibit, but you have. And, and it seems we're back to that word community again, because as you described the archaeological community before and community digs and getting local people involved to sites, um, the artistic community and how that engages with the wider community generally, that seems huge for you. It, it really comes across very strongly. So has that just developed over time or have the arts always been there too? Yeah, so I think it's developed over time and developed through confidence, I suppose, like starting with something small and then developing it and adding a little bit, adding a little bit. But I think the main site that I've been working at over the last 10 years is Brinkethi V, which is the passage tomb on Anismorn, um, which is aligned to the summer solstice. And over the years, we've had excavations in the landscape and, you know, we've discovered all sorts of different things that has kind of shown how Brinkathi doesn't sit in isolation. And these monuments do sit in kind of ceremonial or ritual landscapes. Um, and as part of that work, you know, I do want the local people and the local community to come and reconnect with these sites. Because 10 years ago, when I started doing this, Hardly any Welsh people, I, I really don't think they really knew what Brinkethi was, you know, and like you say, with the, this kind of, there has been a bit of a revival in this, where lots more people are much more interested now, 10 years later, um, and these links between all these things are all coming, you know, back maybe, yeah. 10 years ago, like I said, things were moving to the science, so I think now it's kind of starting to come back, it's really exciting really excited about it um and yeah we have been doing artists in residencies at Brinkethi V as part of that archaeology project um working with various crafts people um and just telling the story of of that period and that landscape really in innovative ways because i think by using the art we can get to way more people than through archaeology I think if you start from the art perspective and then bring people in to the archaeology, you're more likely to get them interested in archaeology because archaeology is so vast and so big, it's really hard to get your head around it. I mean, it took me years to know, you know, these deep time timelines. It takes you back, you know, millions of years to the fossil age all the way through to human culture and the first human ceremonial burial and how that, you know, it all slotted in. I remember when I was in uni, it just slotted one day and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I can, I can see the, I can see the timeline. So I've got a bit of a photographic memory, but yeah. So I think, yeah, that is a passion. And, uh, you know, I'm really excited that hopefully it, um, we can bring this project that's kind of, got a, a bit of a template now and move it to other sites across Wales. Which is so exciting and I think really encouraging as well because it, it that collaboration between those different worlds and also those different levels of expertise, you know, in those different worlds as well. You could be somebody that's um, made a piece of art for the first time and you want to join in and, and you're able to give space for that in some of the exhibitions alongside 
much more established artists that perhaps have galleries that represent their work and to me that's very similar to what you were talking about with um archaeology you could be you know, a, a, someone that's much younger on a community dig, uh, and almost have that moment that you had with the clay pipes and and the and the coins, and think, "Wow, this is incredible." Um, and it, it does require both um, a passion and a generosity of those people in positions to enable that to happen and to be able to inspire. Um, and I think as soon as you start joining those two things together, then there, there's something else that comes from it as well, because um, some people might be more inclined towards the discipline of the archaeology and some people might be more um, inclined towards the discipline of the art and, and how that you know helps them to understand and see places. So it's an incredible thing that you're setting up. And yeah, I wonder, do you find that that's really shared amongst uh, the, both the arts and the archaeological communities? Is it... Is it the case now that you're getting lots of interest from people wanting to, to join in or or do you still have to work quite hard to, to find people that want to do this? It, it feels like lots of people do want to, but I wonder how it is for you. Oh, definitely. I think, um, yeah, I could be supporting way more people. I think um, if we could harness more support from our governments to invest more, I suppose, in this type of work, because um, I think it's really rewarding you know, both from a kind of a practical side, but also a spiritual side, you know, that these places do offer us different ways of seeing the world because it offers that kind of portal, I suppose. It offers that space, doesn't it, away from the modern developments that, and the modernness that we always, all this noise that we're always, when when I go and see a monument, that noise is stripped away and I'm just there with the stones and I feel like I'm having a conversation with them and I'll explore them looking for cup marks and I'll be looking for lichen and seeing which lichen grows on this particular one. Is there a mushroom here? You know, what's going on in the landscape? Is it related to the sea? So you're always kind of map making in your mind. And I think that's... What I really love about kind of going out and finding a new monument or one that you haven't found or, you know, you walk driving down tiny little lanes going, oh, where is it? And then you're like, there it is on the top of the hill. I'm sure I just saw the shadow of it. Right. Drive back. <laughs> I love that, you know, the journey of the finding. Oh, yeah. And I, I know that feeling well. And um Another one that I get that really excites me is when I spot a connection or I spot um, another site that I've never noticed in 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 view before, or I realise where it is in relation to you know the site I'm there at, uh, you know. So that happens quite a lot, you know, for me over the last couple of years in Cornwall, where I'll be at a particular place, and then I'll be like, oh, hold on a minute, I recognise that from you know like a couple of hours ago when I was at this other site. That so it must be there somewhere, and I'm sort of like looking along, probably wishing I had my binoculars that I probably haven't got, you know, because didn't prepare properly but i can sort of figure out where things are and then you know if i'm if the weather conditions are right and even if they're not generally i'll sort of like find if there's a way a route between the two and when you make those connections it's similar to for me to the, the connections you're just describing it's like wow this site now means something else because it physically uh, connects with another and and then you've got everything else to consider, like, you know, were they built thousands of years apart or would they have had a contemporary use or what would they have meant to the people that built them? And, you know, I'm off then, you know, I'm, I could disappear for hours. <laughs> dreaming. Oh. Exactly. Yeah, thing. 
and I think that's the thing with Brink SUV. It's just a bit of a rabbit hole, you know. Once you start looking, we just kept finding more things in the landscape. And over the last part of the project, we've discovered, you know, 12 rock art panels in the landscape looking down onto Brink SUV, which is then looking towards the Stonedonia mountain range. And then we've Right on the behind Brink SUV, there's another monument that was built 500 years later. And then right at the bottom of the ridge, we discovered some um, pottery and some Neolithic pits with some pottery and a stone axe underneath it. And that stone axe was, you know, a thousand years earlier than that pottery. So it's crazy to think that people kept a piece of stone for a thousand years. That's another thing that blows my mind. Because, you know, our museums are only 100 years old. Mm. It's a piece of rock. They're just a piece of rock. A thousand years. And they somehow managed to keep it somewhere safe um, for a thousand years without anyone losing it. And then and putting it into this pit in the ground and digging a hole and putting it in the ground and then covering it with um, their traditional pottery and then us coming and finding it 6,000 years later. That's, that to me is, that's, I, I love that. I just love that idea in my mind, as well as obviously I was there, you know, touching the object. It's the memory of it as well and the, and, and everything that goes with it, you know. Um, so in, the, in that sense, yeah, archeology span is magical, you know. I love the way in which you approach all of this. I love the way that you share the curiosity and the experience of the things that you're finding, whether they're lithic or um, fungal or um, or artistic-based pieces of work, and I'm sure they combine and will continue to combine even more as, as, as time goes on. Um, it's quite an interesting combination of things, and, it, and it's one that I find really fascinating. I think you represent it really well, and it does feel like community is really at the heart of a lot of the work that you do and interest in encouraging people so you know i think that's a wonderful thing it very clearly comes across uh, and it's a very powerful tool um as you said the world can be a very fast moving and difficult place to navigate at the moment but these sites they do offer us don't they a, a chance to step outside of all of that step outside of time perhaps yeah and, uh, just have time to think i suppose that's I think that's what I use these tools for in a way, you know, it is a meditative thing that, you know, if I do go and look for mushrooms, I'll probably be on my own. And what happens is you just get into this zone where everything else that's, you know, trying to take your attention just somehow leaves your mind. And all I can think about is mushrooms. And, you know, it's like an escape in a way. But, um, yeah, it's definitely uh, meditative. I, well, I definitely find it meditative. Um, yeah, and it's, yeah. It's a great pursuit. Well, Dr. Fionn Reynolds, thank you very much for your time. Um, it's great to talk to you about these things. And as I say, we'll, we'll share links to, to various projects that are ongoing and papers you've written because there's a whole world to, to dive into there that I'm, I'm, I'm still only just discovering myself. And um, I think anything that can you know, offer the chance to engage with our ancient sites in the ways that you do has to be applauded. So thank you for that too. Thank you very much, Matt. Thanks for listening to Stone Club Walks and Talks. 
You can find us in all the usual places, Instagram, Twitter, and of course our website, stoneclub.rocks. And don't forget to like and share the podcast. We'll be back soon with another walk and another talk. Goodbye.